This morning we jump back into our series through the Gospel of Luke. If you've been here for long, you know that typically our pattern is to make our way through books of the Bible, and so we're going to continue on through Luke. We've spent the summer working through some psalms, and uh, we've just spent the last five weeks looking at some basic questions for Christians. But uh, like an old friend, we return now to the Gospel of Luke to make our way through uh, this book some more. Luke, as you'll remember, was written by the, the physician named Luke. He writes predominantly to a Gentile audience. And he tells us in Luke chapter 1 that his purpose in writing is to give us certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. So another way of emphasizing the purpose statement of the book of Luke is that Luke's purpose in writing is to give us certainty in the gospel. That's what drives him to write. And like any good doctor, he doesn't go about his work in a haphazard way, but he follows the life and the ministry of Jesus closely. He tells us that in Luke chapter 1 at the very beginning of the book. And then he writes an orderly account so that we might know, so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. We're picking up now in chapter 12. By now, Jesus has already been born. He's already grown into a man. His public ministry is now about half over. He has already called 12 men to be his apostles, his disciples, or his interns, so to speak. He's been teaching the crowds that seem to grow with every chapter of the book of Luke. And the religious leaders of the Jews have not yet fully turned against him. So this is really kind of a sweet spot in Jesus' ministry as he ministers to the large crowds. His opposition has not really come against him real strong yet. But it's here in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus begins to address matters of the heart. In fact, if you just kind of scan your eyes back over some of the passages we looked at back in April and May here in Luke, you'll see in verses 1 through 12 in chapter 12, Jesus teaches on hypocrisy. And on fearing other humans more than we fear the Lord. In verses 13 through 21, Jesus addresses temptation. Specifically the temptation to find our identity and our security in the things that we possess. The things that we accomplish. In verses 22 through 34, he teaches on anxiety and fear. Pointing out that these are matters of the heart. Which lead us now to verse 35 where we pick up this morning. And if we were to kind of summarize the the thesis or the theme of verses 35 through 48, it, it might be this. Be ready. Be ready. In fact, that's what Jesus says in the very first section of the verses that we look at this morning. Look at verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps Burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they will open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the point for us is clear. Be prepared for Jesus' return. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how do we know that it's Jesus that's being referred to here, that it's Jesus' return that's being talked about? Well, the reason we know is because of the description or the name of the one who is to return. In fact, if you look at verse 40, Jesus tells us that the one who is to return is called the Son of Man, which sounds like a generic enough title to us, but as you survey the Bible, you find that the term Son of Man is loaded with meaning. For example, the Son of Man is the one from Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 who would come as the promised liberating king. Son of Man is actually one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. He calls himself Son of Man frequently. And so this title, Son of Man, would have been widely known by Jesus' audience to mean the Messiah. So when Jesus refers to the return of the Son of Man, he is referring to himself. And in light of his return, he says we are to be ready. And just notice the twin descriptions for being ready that Jesus gives here in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And my guess is those are not descriptions that you use frequently today. Like, hey, I'm going to pick you up so we can go to the game. I'll be by about 7 o'clock, so be dressed for action. <laughs> or keep your lamps burning, right? It's probably not phrases that you use. You could. In fact, it might be fun to try that out this week and see what sort of response you get. But they don't have the same meaning for us today that they would have had to Jesus' audience. To Jesus' audience, be dressed for action would point them back to God's instructions to his people in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. When God gave them instructions as they were to eat the Passover meal, and he said, as you eat the Passover meal, eat it with your robes tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet, with your walking stick in your hand. Why? Because God was at any moment going to miraculously lead his people out of slavery. He was about to set them free. And so they needed to be ready to move. And God told the people, in in effect, like, put your gym shoes on and put on your workout clothes because I'm about to do something here. You're going to need to be ready to go, ready to move, not encumbered. And there's a similar picture here in verse 35 with the instructions to keep your lamps burning. So back in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the parable of, of virgins, these ten virgins. Five are foolish and five are wise. The wise virgins, all of the virgins are waiting for the the bridal party to come, the bridegroom to come, so that they can all go into the house and celebrate together the wedding. But the foolish ones did not bring extra oil for their lamp. So as they wait and the night goes on, gets late, and everyone's lamp runs out of oil. 
five wise virgins have brought extra oil with them, and so they can easily fill up their lamps, and the lamps stay burning. The five foolish ones don't have that, and so they leave to go get more oil, and while they're gone getting more oil, the the bridal party arrives, and everyone enters the house, and the door is shut and locked, and they miss it. Again, the point is to be prepared. Be prepared for the bridal party. Be prepared for the return of the one for whom you are waiting. Be prepared for Jesus. And to all of that then, Jesus adds this illustration, an example of servants, in verse 36, who are waiting for their master to return. So the picture is of servants who are gatekeepers at the doors, at the gates, And they're waiting for their master to return. They don't know when he's going to return. They simply know that he has said he is going to return. And so they wait expectantly and they watch and they listen and they are prepared. And when the master comes, they open the gate for him. And it's these faithful servants who are then rewarded. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Did you get that? The master is now serving the servants who are prepared, who are ready, who are waiting. I mean, this is almost too good to be true. Like the roles are now reversed. The master will serve the servants which even points back to what Jesus himself said about his ministry in Luke twenty two twenty seven, when he said he came as one who serves. The faithful servants enjoy this feast that is prepared by the master. It's almost like Jesus is teaching us that he is preparing a place for us. He's preparing a feast. He's He's preparing a table and spreading out a table so that his faithful followers might enjoy him. Now, we need to be careful not to overread that part of the parable. Jesus will not be serving us for all of eternity. In fact, Jesus has already served us by dying for our sake, by dying in our place. So the purpose here, as Tom Schreiner helpfully points out, is to underscore that we, as the people of God, as the faithful servants, will be rewarded far beyond what we deserve by God. Like God is gracious and generous and kind, and he gives us far more than we deserve. Again, the point is, however, that we are to be prepared. Even if, according to verse 38, Jesus returns in the middle of the night is when the second and third watch of the night would be. We are to be prepared. You might remember from last week, we saw Jesus' own words when he said that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. It will be a surprise. Which is a point then, the point of Jesus' second illustration that he gives in verses 39 and 40. If the master of the house knew that he would be robbed and when he would be robbed, he would be alert. He would not have left his home to be broken into. But because he was not alert, because he was not ready, because he was not prepared, his home was robbed. 
And that is not a story about home security. It's a story about being ready. Be ready because according to verse 40, the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Therefore, we are not to be like those who sleep. We are not to be like those who take lightly the predictions of the Lord's return. And we're not to be like those who waste time speculating about when he might return. I mean, any speculation that we might have about when Jesus will return is just foolishness. And Jesus himself said, we will be surprised. <laughs> Lest we try to figure it out so that we don't become surprised. It's also foolish to speculate and waste time speculating about when Jesus might return. Because time spent speculating when... Jesus might returns, distracts us from what we are called to do while we wait. Jesus has given us instructions about what we are to do while we wait for his return. Friends, being ready is more than just expecting Jesus to return. It's also about what we do while we wait. It's also about how we wait. On Jesus' return. And in fact, this is what the second part then of our section of scripture is about this morning. Verses 35 through 40 really emphasize the fact that Jesus is returning. We should expect him to return. And now verses 41 through 48 really emphasize how we should be waiting or what we should be doing as we wait for Jesus' return. And this second part begins with a question from Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Look at verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Like, is this parable just for the apostles, just for the disciples, or is this parable for everyone, for all of your followers and even those who don't follow you? And if you look at verses 42 and following, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't directly answer Peter's question in the way that Peter asks the question. Instead, he gives another parable, and he answers the question in the form of this parable. We could call this parable that Jesus gives in verses 42 through 48 a tale of two types of managers. A tale of two types of managers that Jesus gives, the prepared and the unprepared. So here, Jesus isn't so much teaching us that we should be ready or that we should be prepared, but again, he's going to demonstrate for us how we are to be waiting. And this parable applies to all people, the faithful and the unfaithful. But I'm gonna argue, and you're gonna see this hopefully in just a minute, that this parable has special significance for church leaders, for pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, deaconesses, those who teach the Bible, those who have been given spiritual responsibility, those who have been given insight, resources, and time to study the word. And in that way, Jesus does answer Peter's question. First, that this has broad application to all of us, but secondly, that it has special application and meaning to those who are given special responsibility. So let's look at these two types of managers. And I'll just warn you ahead of time, if you're an outline kind of person, 
So there's two types of managers, the faithful or the prepared and the unprepared, the faithful and the unfaithful. When we get to the unfaithful, there are actually three examples of unfaithful, right? So we'll have like point one and point two, and then under point two, we're going to have three subpoints. So I didn't want to throw you off. Let's look at the faithful manager first. Verse 42, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his servant or whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, blessed is the servant who who does that, who gives the household their portion of food at the proper time. Verse 44, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So the prepared manager, the rewarded manager, is the manager who faithfully and wisely cares for those things that are entrusted to him. He sees to it that those in his care receive their portion of food at the proper time. If we were just to summarize what makes the faithful manager faithful, it's that he manages by doing what the master told him to do. He manages in the way that the master would want him to manage. He does it faithfully. He does it wisely. He doesn't grow tired in doing good, as Galatians 6, 9 teaches us. And servants like this will be rewarded. They will receive a blessing from the Lord. To those who are faithful with a little are entrusted with much. And that's what we see happening for this faithful manager. But what about the unfaithful manager? Or the unfaithful managers, as I said, there are at least three ways of being unprepared in this parable. I think we could call the first unfaithful manager the self-indulging manager. The self-indulging manager. Look at verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, And he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So this manager, this self-indulging manager thinks to himself, you know what? Man, it's been a long time since since the master left. It's so long, in fact, that I don't know if my master will actually even return. In fact, now that I think about it even more, I bet he's not even going to return at all. I bet he's off doing something else, is completely unconcerned about me and about those that he has entrusted in my care. And then he turns from managing on behalf of the master to acting as an abusive master. He uses his delegated authority for his own twisted and selfish purposes He eats and he drinks and he gets drunk without any thought of the rightful master who owns it all. In fact, just notice that the contrast between the faithful master who gives to the household their portion of food at the proper time, contrast that now with the self-indulging master. The picture is not of one who gives the household their food and their portion at the proper time, but one who gluttons himself on the food one who gets drunk on the wine, who who only cares about himself and his own desires and his own needs. But he's not worried. After all, the master won't come. It's been a long time. 
You can imagine the look on his face. You can imagine the terror in his heart when the master does return. Verse 46, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. The master will come at an unexpected hour. At an unexpected time and he will punish the manager. The servant doesn't simply lose his reward. I mean his lack of faithfulness demonstrates that he does not belong to the master's people at all. His fate will be as with the other unbelievers. So if the first example of an unprepared manager is the self-indulgent, the second would be we could call the negligent. The negligent. Look at verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. And this manager or this servant knew the master's will, but didn't get ready. He didn't act according to the master's will. Maybe he was lazy. Maybe he doubted whether or not the master would return. Maybe like the seed among the thorns, he became choked off by the cares of this world and the desire for other things, regardless of what caused him to be unprepared, what caused him to be negligent in his responsibilities He was not prepared, and when the master returns, he will be severely punished. We have the self-indulging manager, the negligent manager. Notice third. We could call this third the ignorant manager. Verse 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom uh, much, uh, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So this manager didn't know the master's will, didn't get ready according to the master's will. Maybe he never met the master. Maybe he never heard the master's instructions. Notice he still does what rightly deserves punishment. But his punishment will be different based on the knowledge he had. Again, Tom Schreiner writes, Those who think that the master will not come for a long time and begin to mistreat their fellow servants will be punished. And those who know more about the master's requirements will be punished more severely than those who do not know what the master has required. And in all of these examples, the the punishments and the beating refer to final judgment. They don't refer to things that happen in the here and now. The point is that one day in the final judgment, when we all stand before the Lord, the judgment that is received will be proportionate. Now, Let's be really clear. Just as Roman 1 teaches us that everyone, even those who have never heard the gospel, are without excuse. Like no one will get a pass one day when we stand before the Lord simply because they never heard. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that we have all sinned against God. 
that we all have suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness, and some still are. And so we are all responsible for the consequences of our sin. It's one of the reasons a few weeks ago when we talked about why we are called to go and share the gospel, why we are called into the work of missions. We're called because the glory of God needs to be seen and celebrated and savored by, by people all around the world. And the way people hear about the glory of God is through people going and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing the message of God. And if we don't go and they don't hear, they go to an eternity in hell apart from God, whether or not they've heard. However, or at the same time, passages like this do seem to teach that there are different levels of punishment for those who sin against God. Those who don't know God's law are still responsible for their sin, but they will receive, it seems, a different level of punishment than those who have heard the good news and have rejected. We see the same principle in Jesus' own ministry. He said that the towns that witnessed his miracles and his teaching and still failed to believe would receive a more intense punishment one day than even the wicked Old Testament cities that never heard. And this also seems to connect with a warning that Jesus gives to teachers in James chapter 3 that those who teach the Bible will be judged with greater strictness. Which I think is how Jesus answers Peter's question, both that this parable is for everyone, and you also better listen, Peter. You better listen, apostles and disciples. You better listen, church leaders. Bible college students, small group leaders, elders, deacons, pastors, because you who have had greater access to truth will be judged more strictly. To put it another way, people who have been trusted by God with many abilities and responsibilities and opportunities will be held to a higher standard on the last day, as the ESV Study Bible puts it. So, given the fact that Jesus will return, and given the fact that we should be expecting him and prepared for him, and that we should be faithful while we wait, I want to turn now to address this question. How should we live today in light of the day? So if you remember last week, Of course, you all remember. That was a hypothetical question. You all remember last week how we saw that in the Bible, the the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, is a term that is used multiple times in Scripture to refer to the time in which the Lord will fully and finally defeat his enemies, and in so doing, he will simultaneously rescue his own people for all eternity. We long for that day, and that day will be ushered in when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom in its fullness. So the question we want to turn to now as we wrap up this morning is how do we live today in light of the day? How do we wait faithfully and wisely? Let me just briefly offer five ways to live today in light of the day. First, believe that Jesus will return. This is the common theme in all of these verses. Jesus is coming back. Be ready for him. 
Don't be lulled into a false sense of security simply because it's been a long time. Don't be like the, the, don't be like the manager who says, you know, it's been a long time. Jesus still hasn't come back, and so I'm going to take my eyes off of what he's called me to do. I'm going to, I'm going to begin to live for myself. The message is clear. We are to believe that Jesus will return. He has told us that he would return, and he has always kept his promises. We don't know when that will be. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story, the fictional story of demons who are gathered in the presence of Satan. They're trying to figure out ways to trip up Christians and to sidetrack and to derail Christians from the faith. One speaks up and says, I know what we can do. Let's convince them that there is no God. Satan says that'll never work. They, they have their testimony from the scriptures. and It's too, too brazen. It's too bold. They'll never fall for that. Another demon speaks up and says, I know, instead of saying that there is no God, how about we just say there is no hell? Satan said, well, that may get a few, but again, that's pretty brazen, and their word teaches that there is a hell. The third demon spoke up and said, instead of trying to convince them that there is no God or there is no hell, how about we just convince them that there is no hurry? And Satan said, that may work. Friends, how do we live today in light of the day? We begin by believing that Jesus will return as he promised at any moment. Secondly, we trust in Jesus' provision for life and reward at his, ter- at, at his return. J.C. Ryle wrote, The readiness for the return of Christ to this world implies nothing which is impossible or unattainable. It requires no angelic perfect- perfection It requires no man to forsake his family and retire into solitude. It requires nothing more than the life of repentance, faith, and holiness. The man who is living the life of faith in the Son of God is the man whose loins are girded, who's dressed for action, whose light is burning. And Jesus Christ has provided us every provision that we need for his return. And he has provided it through his life and his death and his resurrection. The fact that God provided Jesus Christ to live without sin, to die willingly as a substitute on the cross in the place of all who believe in him. That he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and has ascended back to the Father, awaiting the Father's instructions to return. We gloriously long for that day and wait for that day. So how do we live today in light of that day to come? We live by trusting and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We repent, we turn from our sin. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We've been praying, we prayed this morning before service. This morning, the Holy Spirit would be opening blind eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and softening hard hearts. That you would hear that gospel call, and that you would respond, that you would believe in Jesus and be saved. 
how do we live today in light of the day? Well, we believe that Jesus will return. Secondly, we trust in the provision in Jesus' provision for life and reward at his return. Third, we seek to follow the pattern of faithfulness that God has given to us. Like one common theme in all unfaithful examples in our text is that they behaved and lived as though the master was not going to return. Instead of obeying him and living how he would want them to live, they live for their own purposes. And so the message is clear. We ought to live now in ways that point to the fact that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We belong to the Lord. And when we fail and when we sin, we ought to turn back to the Lord and find forgiveness and continue to live faithfully. Friends, we never retire from this. Like we never age out of waking up every day seeking to give ourselves completely to live that day how the Lord would want us to live that day. Fourth, how do we live today in light of the day? We should test our heart to make sure that other things aren't more important than the Lord. And notice where this parable is placed. It comes right after verses 32 through 34, which address the heart. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Friends, we can't be truly ready, even hoping for the return of Jesus, if our heart is in love with this world. So we should check our hearts. We should ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts to make sure other things aren't more important than Jesus, than our precious Savior. Like, how would you respond if you knew that Jesus was going to return today at 2 o'clock? My guess is some of you in this room would think to yourself, oh, man, I really wanted to get married first. Or I really wanted to drive a car, get a driver's license. I really wanted to have kids or grandkids or retire or go on that vacation we've been planning for years. But could it be that when Jesus returns and we see him face to face as his own people, as the bride of Christ, that the joy and the love and the intimacy that we have with our Savior as the bride of Christ and he as our bridegroom is greater even than the joys of earthly marriage? And could it be that the joy and the wonder and the splendor of seeing Jesus face to face and beholding him as he is without sin ourselves will be greater and more joyous than even holding a brand new baby for the first time or a grandbaby or beholding the sunset over the coast that you've longed to see for 20 years. The emphatic answer from cover to cover in all of scripture is that the glory that will be ours, the joy that will be ours, the wonder that will be ours when we finally at last fully behold our Savior will be greater than the joy, any joy that this earth has to offer. That these are merely pictures, shadows of the greater joy that is to come. And so may we focus our attention on the word of God 
as we wait. May we give ourselves to prayer. May we engage in the work of the Lord that, that somehow kind of whets our appetite for more and more of Jesus for beholding Jesus more and more. And that as we do that, as the old song says, the things of this world just grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Finally, should we live today in light of the day? We should rest in the salvation to come. We should rest in the salvation to come and the joy he will bring. I don't mean the opposite of labor. I don't mean the opposite of work. But I mean rest in our soul. Find rest knowing that for those of us who are walking with Jesus, those of us who are ready for Jesus' return, that his return then is not something that should worry us or cause us fear or anxiety. Because we know that the decisive work of salvation is complete. It's done. We just have to wait for the best to come. And while we wait, yeah, we engage in the work of the Lord. We engage in the work of evangelism. We engage in making disciples of all nations. And we love our families and we do good work and we tell the truth and we, we seek to encourage others. We do all those things, yes. But the decisive work, our inheritance to come has already been secured by the finished work of Jesus. It's all the wonder and the glory of the Lord that he would give us these words to prepare us, to prepare our hearts for the return of King Jesus. And he's not only given us his words, but he's given us a meal to prepare us for his return. And so this morning I've asked a few friends to help serve us the Lord's Supper. They're going to Get the elements ready for you. 